Welcome back to another episode of Season 2 of Stern Chats. Today's guest is an esteemed NYU Stern professor, Dolly Chug, who's known for her enthusiastic teaching style, care for her students, and leading research on implicit bias. Her new book, entitled The Person You Mean to Be, will hit bookstores next year. So Frank, want to tell us a little bit more about Professor Chug? I sure do. Dolly Chug is an award-winning tenured professor who studies implicit bias and unintentional unethical behavior. Dolly's research integrates the theories and methods of social psychology, behavioral economics, judgment, decision-making, sociology, and education. Dolly has been named one of the top 100 most influential people in business ethics. Also on that list, Pope Francis, Angelina Jolie, and Bill Gates. She's also a recipient of the prestigious New York University Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Faculty Award. But before all of these awards, and prior to settling on academia, Dolly was in the world of business, receiving her MBA from Harvard University. I have to say, I was a little starstruck when we interviewed her. I am not going to lie. Interestingly, Dolly taught a class I attended during preview weekend, which, for those of you who don't know, is a weekend for students who have been accepted to NYU Stern. And she is primarily a reason that I chose to come to this fine institution. Well, I think we're all happy that you're here now, Sherry. I am as well. So Dolly Chug is responsible for you coming to Stern. I think that's her biggest accomplishment to date. If only. Let's <laughs> just discount all of the other incredible accolades that well, she's accumulated. Thanks, Dolly. We appreciate it. And she's a great guest. So Sherry, what do you think? Should we start the Show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we are so excited to have Professor Dolly Chug with us in the studio. Welcome. Thank Thanks so much you. for being here. I can't tell you how excited I am. For those of us who don't know much about you, could you give us a 20-second intro? Oh, absolutely. So my name's Dolly Chug. I'm a big fan of Stern Chats. I love listening to the Oh, we love the to hear programs. that. I really do. I truly do. I'm a professor here at the Stern School of Business in the Management and Organizations Department. That means I teach leadership and management classes to MBA students, mostly in the full-time MBA program. I'm also a mom to two girls, a husband to a Stern alum, and the daughter of two amazing parents. Great intro. Yeah. And she came in off sabbatical, Sherry. <laughs> That's so, it's so huge. I can't believe that you have trekked all the way from Midtown with all of your monitors yeah. and your research equipment. We were talking before, we asked her about her commute and she described how she uh, she was sh like schlepping monitors across New York City and uh, it, trying to get to the West Village. She went to Brooklyn instead. <laughs> Things happen. Things happen. You really should look at the sign before you get on the train. Yes, but when you rush into that train, this is just like a public service announcement for yes, people. When you're rushing to catch that train, yeah, make yeah. sure it's the downtown. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the, yeah, there's that moment of glory when you make it as the door is closed and oh. you're so proud of yourself and you're like, oh, 100%. I rock. I like sprinted down those stairs. And then there's that moment of... Dread. Agony. Oh my God. Agony. The this agony is of an defeat. express train to <laughs> the, the end of the world. <laughs> Connecticut. Yeah, I, uh, I've done that before actually on, on Taking the Path, and yeah. I, I've jumped in, I've made it, <laughs> yeah. and then the doors close, <laughs> and my body's in my backpack, is caught in the door. Oh. So, oh. Yeah, that's So what a do you pickle. do? What do you do? I, you know, pretending like I'm a superhero, I pry the door <laughs> apart with my hands, much to the to, to the anger of the people on board, because yeah. then it has to repeat the whole door closing process again. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. So just hey, uh, everybody, if you're listening to this podcast, look before you leap. <laughs> We've all learned something today. So, but, but 
there's like community building because then everybody like steps in. They're like, oh no, like you're right. Caught. That's true. Everyone's yeah. like pulling you yeah. in. That's true. New Yorkers are friendly people. Yes, I think they, they are. are. I actually believe that. My it, image of you, by the way, is not like monitors like you th- like you see over there, like a flat one. I, I in this story, I'm imagining you got like two of the 1990s. I know. Me too. Me too. Under too. each arm, like a real schlep. You know? I know. I'm schlepping. Yeah. I know you're. <laughs> so you started your commute at midnight last night. <laughs> I know. You've been traveling for 12 hours. Are you okay? You, my, my brain is so good. <laughs> Professor Chuck, like, your phone has a GPS on it. You have it. How does that work? Like, you just, we can show you after. Show me after. Google Maps. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Maybe Don't feel later. Bad. Maybe later. You no. can well, all New Yorkers have taken either an uptown train when they wanted a downtown. <laughs> Or they've taken that express train. Oh, oh, they wanted a local. And they're in the Bronx now. <laughs> and they're like, why am I in the Bronx? Yeah, nothing wrong with the Bronx, but it's <laughs> nothing wrong. It to be. Might as well go to the zoo while I'm there. Yeah, check out a Yankee game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, or, or heck, just build a house and yeah. start a new life there. <laughs> we want to bring up the book first, because that's okay. something that's probably the most exciting. You have spent a lot of your time in the sabbatical writing a book, which is entitled The Person You Mean to Be. Just yes. due out next year. Yes. So exciting. Thank you. I'm really excited actually. I'm I'm not completely done with it, but I'm I'm through a major uh, phase of the writing and it's uh the kind of book that I think would help me, like writing it has helped me and I'm hoping it helps other people. It's it's like the thinking person's guide to how to be a better person, how to help with all the issues we're having in our country right now around um, inequality and bias and prejudice. I think we all want to be part of the solution, and few of us know how to do that. There's, in the book, a lot of stories in science about how we can do that better and how our intuitions about what to do are sometimes a little off. And so the social science, the social psychology can kind of guide us. A lot of that stuff sits in these dusty academic journals that none of us read. I'm trying to bring it to a broader audience. So can you give us an example of an instance where intuition might lead us astray? Absolutely. So there's some great research by uh, Mike Norton, Sam Summers, and others that looks at colorblindness. So most of us, if we were raised in the U.S., we were raised in a narrative, the, the Dr. Martin Luther King narrative of not judging anyone by their color, not seeing the color, his children won't be judged by the color of their skin. And we we thought that meant that we literally aren't supposed to acknowledge that you're white, you're white, and I'm not white. That that I'm pointing to myself because I have brown skin, and I guess it wouldn't be obvious on an audio. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, and, and I'm assuming you both self-identify as white. I don't actually know if that's true, but okay, you're both nodding. So we've we've been raised to believe that while we can acknowledge things like someone's gender, that we can't acknowledge someone's race. That there's something negative. We have to be colorblind. What the research shows is that when you're in a situation where race is relevant, so for example, I'm trying to point out someone across the room, and I go out of my way to say, well, she's wearing the black pants. Well, okay, there's a lot of people over there wearing black pants. She's the one with short hair. She's the African-American woman on the other side of the room. There's like Like, a social stigma attached to identifying someone's race. Race. We all can see who's black and who's white. I mean, not that it's always obvious, but... um, When it's obvious and we don't acknowledge it and it's relevant in a conversation, what research shows is that we're actually trusted less by African-Americans. They actually, um, in studies, show that when race won't be acknowledged, when it's actually denied, when it's relevant, that's the important thing, that we're actually erasing it like there's something wrong with it. Like, there's something wrong with me saying you're white. There's something wrong with me saying you're black or you're brown. When race is relevant, when difference is relevant and we act blind to it, what we're doing is acting like there's something wrong with it. We're stigmatizing it. And we're also ignoring all the beautiful things about being different. We're being difference blind, difference mute. And we're not bringing that into, you know, this whole claim we have that diversity is a wonderful thing. That's interesting. I mean, it's almost like an unintended consequence <laughs> of people trying to do exactly. like a, a nice thing almost. Exactly. Right? They're trying to be courteous in a way that the society told them to be. Exactly. We're all trying to do the right thing. And that's why the book is called The Person You Mean to Be. We're trying to do the right thing, our good intentions. So the particular chapter that I talk about colorblindness in, you know, is all about like dangerous good intentions. It's about how wanting to 
help people, I'm very guilty of this one, that I want to come in and someone who's in need or despair, I want to come in and fix it. I want to make it better. If money will make it better, I want to put money against the problem. If, if I can connect them to someone that'll make it, I want to do it, right? I want to save the day. But what happens, what the psychology of that says is that we get so wrapped up in being the savior that we lose sight. We actually otherize that person. They're just a problem that lets us be a hero, that lets us be the solution. We get to be the hero in our own narrative. <laughs> hero in our own narrative. <laughs> yes. And I'm I, yeah. very guilty of this. We, but yeah, we all want to be the hero we in all our own be story. The hero. But right? we, absolutely. But what we can't forget is like where we all started was there was actually someone in need in that moment. Right. What what's the implication? You you know you mentioned that we are less trusted mm-hmm. um, by different segments of of the population. Yeah. What what's the implication of that when yeah. we're not trusted as much? It's like yeah. ignoring reality, maybe. Yeah. Like doesn't help. No, no. Yeah, I mean, I think the implication and what what we know about trust is that when people trust each other less, that they're less willing to take risks in front of people. They're less willing to engage in interdependent tasks. They're less willing to, um, when given a choice, work with that person versus alone or with someone else. So, you know, if we take it into the workplace, we can we all know that trust, you know, is a, a key lubricant to how work gets done in an organization. Um, so. That's one of the, the, the downsides. The other downside is that we just, um, we miss out on the opportunity to know someone as a whole, to know someone as a three-dimensional person because we've, we've erased part of who they are. We've, we've also erased the challenges they face. We've assumed that because we have, we're being colorblind, we're assuming that we can just normalize our experience onto someone else's experience when it's not necessarily a universal experience. Wow, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. But, you know, when I, when I see your uh, articles online, like you have all these papers that you wrote. Uh, by the way, this is kind of like exciting as I, I you know, I Googled you in research be- yeah. before, you, before wow. you came. And I was like, whoa, look at all these articles. Wow. <laughs> There's so many. And then I was like overwhelmed with like stress. I was like, which one do I pick? Oh, you should have just asked me. Most of them suck. No, false. <laughs> false. You know, and you know, I know that that's false because you can see on Google Scholar how many times they've been cited that's by other true. people. That's true. And you get cited a lot. And that's like, true. I don't, I think the people that are citing you like probably know a thing or two as well. So objectively, <laughs> objectively, people that are smarter than me really like them but I mean you've done all this this amazing research and yeah. you've published it in these journals and it talks about a lot of the things you're you're right. discussing why was it so important to you to instead of communicate through that medium yeah. combine it in this book yeah absolutely well because I mean to be honest despite the citations I think the average academic article is read 3.2 times total like just because we're citing like it doesn't mean we're reading it boy is that all academic articles I think it's it's an average. So there are a lot of zeros. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's a lot of because zeros. Because you're including in that, like, you know, like molecules of, like, dimethyl <laughs> hydrogen. Like, no, one, right. no one's reading that for fun. Right, right. <laughs> but, I mean, academic articles, when I write in, this has actually been so fun for me, writing a book for a general audience, is to use different muscles in the writing. Because when I'm writing for an academic audience, I'm using a lot of jargon. I'm, I'm like... I'm completely ruminating way too long on something that doesn't matter. Like you and I could sit here when you ask me the question about trust. I mean, I could really break down, well, which kind of trust do you mean? Like there's six different kinds of trust. Let's let's break down when you said trust, you know, and like There's six different kinds of trust. Uh, I don't even know, but maybe oh, man. there probably are. <laughs> People just, who do trust research. It just stressed me out. <laughs> I know. So but so that you know, that's not interesting or relevant to to those of us just trying to get through our day. So I'm writing the book for the, those of us just trying to get through our day and do the right thing and be the people we mean to be. And so it's been so fun to write with relevance in mind, to write with my mother in mind, to write with my students in mind. That feels real to me. There's great value in academic research, and I'm proud to do it, but but it's not going to change people's lives unless we translate it, unless we give it a platform um, and a broader audience. And also something I was able to do in the book that you can't do in academic research is I was able to interview real people and bring their stories into it. So we've got Tommy Kale, the director of Hamilton, um, a great the interview play? with him. The play. You've heard of it? Yes. We're, and actually right now we're in the room where it happens. Yes. So it's yeah. perfect, we are. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, we all love, love it. The play. We should play the music. But I interviewed him for the book. Jody Pico, who's a best-selling author, last nine books have debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. She writes fiction. Interviewed her for the book. 
um, interviewed Joe McNeil from the Greensboro Four, who read the led the lunch counter sit-in movements in 1960. Whoa! Yeah, so we've got some really interesting perspectives, and then interviewed some alums from Stern. We've got a number of uh, alums from Stern who, hopefully, again, I hope their stories make it in. So I think. Those stories for me were really instructive because it's real people with the blood, sweat, and tears of trying to do the right thing, telling their stories, telling where they've messed up, telling them, telling you, yeah, I did this racist thing. And like, it didn't mean to be racist, but the outcome was racist. And this is what happened. And this is what I learned. And this is how I'm trying to do better. So I think that you know, the perception of academia and writing and research yeah. is that it's really quite solitary. Yeah. And, you know, you're in a library yeah. with dusty <laughs> library books and yeah. just buried in your reading. Right. But it sounds like um, your research is really, truly interactive. And I see, you know, even in a lot of your articles, you have a many collaborations with other right. um, thinkers and thought leaders in this space. So what is it about the research that you find so dynamic when working with others? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I would I would split up the research into the kind of book research that I was just describing versus the academic journal research. The academic journal research, I usually, I'm not great at like keeping myself on track if it's just me. So co-authors are great. And most of my co-authors were either my mentors in graduate school or my um, classmates from graduate school who are now professors in different places. A lot of that work happens through lots of phone calls, conference calls, and emails with those co-authors. The book research was actually more solitary in the sense that, you know, I had no co-authors. I am writing this book, but I do have a wonderful editor. I do have a wonderful agent. And then I would do these interviews with these. I did about 40 interviews for the book. Um, So that's, you know, that would be like an hour or 90 minutes with that person. And then I would bring it back into my little writing cave. And I literally had this co-working space midtown with um, just you with a typewriter, <laughs> tack tack tack, ching. Just when you get to the end I of the line, I love that noise. I love the noise. Um, yeah, it was just me and my standing desk and my uh, my monitor and your plant, your one, <laughs> plant. one plant, a cactus. <laughs> That's a cactus. Well, yeah, I'm just trying to get a visual for what your writing room would look like. Yeah, the no, actually, it's funny you say that because. Um, Part of the reason I was schlepping all this stuff in this morning to Brooklyn unintentionally (laughs) um, was that I am trying to recreate. I realized when I went on sabbatical, one of my lessons was we all have whatever office space we're sort of given in an organization. I've been at Stern for 11 years. I've worked in the space I was given. I feel it's a very nice space. It's I have lots of room. I have a door. I have a window. It's great. You know, in the academic world, it's a great academic. It's a great workspace. But when I went on sabbatical and I designed my own workspace, I realized I designed to for my maximum like energy level and clarity, it was a completely different workspace that I designed. So now when I've come back here, we've redesigned my office. And I didn't want to do anything that would cost the school money. It turned out, though, that we have these like L-shaped desks that kind of jut into the middle of the room and like you're trapped in the middle of this desk. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. There's all this like furniture all around it's you. It's like half a Pac-Man. <laughs> it's half yeah, a Pac-Man. You're like stuck in you that are in the corner. Pac-Man. You're you were the... about to get eaten by yeah. the Pac-Man. It's a very hard right turn yeah. that desk makes. Yeah. yeah. I totally yeah. understand. Cuts the room off. Totally cuts the room off. So, so it sounds like you've seen it, that L. So I took the L and I just made it a I. The, the carpenters hmm. at Stern, all they had to do was just unscrew it and, and put it to make it a straight line. And instead of it now being an office, it feels like a workshop to me. So I'm in my standing desk. I've got whiteboards. I'm kind of moving around. It's like a more physical way of doing intellectual work. Are and you describing feng shui? Am I? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I wish we had a fact checker. We could go. I don't even know really what feng shui is. I don't is. either. I but thought that was about like, like changing the energy in the room, though. No, but I'm talking about like functionally changing. I mean, I it might be feng shui because I just don't know enough. But but I'm actually talking about like physically being able to do different things. Oh, I love that. Like, I love like that. Like if, if in this beautiful studio that you have, if we were able to like use our the walls and like write on the walls. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, so that's like be able to get up and move around. Oh, imagine once you think once you can color outside the lines, you open your mind to coloring outside the lines. There's all kinds of things exactly. that are open. So this was one of my big epiphanies on sabbatical was Within the constraints of whatever organization you're in, shape your workspace. You know, we should take her advice. We should get some stuff for this studio that, may, like, what would you get to kind of spice this up in here? 
like a slide. Gosh, a slide. <laughs> waterfall. Yeah, waterfall. Maybe like more glitter. Mm. I like sparkly nah, things. Pass on the glitter. You know what I mean? It's got to be. We got the rules. We both got to agree. <laughs> like a Keurig or maybe like a New York Giants poster. Oh, I love it. Coffee maker. Yeah. Not knowing the Giants poster. I want to get back to something that Dolly had said about writing. Uh, she got to write with some of her previous classmates and mentors. Yeah. yeah. Just to, I mean, I heard that, and I, I'm just thinking that would be like the equivalent of if me and Sherry later wrote a book together. Yes, would or you? Or if like our heroes, you know, if you and you know, if if, if you and Sherry wrote a book together. Oh later. Oh my God, Sherry, <laughs> my I, best friend. Dolly I, I, I guess. So, <laughs> totally I guess, gonna do it. But I guess what I'm saying is that like that must feel great to you. To like, you know, all these years ago, like go to school yeah. and like have people you look up yeah. to and now you get to write books with them. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, I, I've yet to actually write a book with them. I've written articles with them and I, I was very blessed by amazing mentors, Max Bazerman and Mazarin Banaji. And yeah, I, in fact, I one of them, Mazarin wrote me yesterday and asked me if I wanted to work on something with her. And, I, and I've known Mazarin now for... 16 years, and I literally still, like, break out into this, like, giddy sweat when I get an email from her. I'm like, oh, my God, Mazarin just wrote me. I, I, I probably have a thousand emails over the years do, from Mazarin, but still. Do you think, like, these people know that you're that excited I or they know. have this effect on you? I don't know. Oh, Should do, we tell them? No. Maybe, well, I think we just did. We I know. I There's think. a microphone in front of you. <laughs> You're going to hear it. <laughs> No, you know what? That's good. The, uh, the, uh, I try to make people forget the microphones here. Yeah, I, think I totally we did. forgot. Yeah, I think we did. I totally <laughs> forgot. You know, I want to ask you about your uh, some of your work on implicit bias. Sure. And specifically, it's important, you know, for me to bring up because when me and Sherry came into Stern, you were actually there week one, yeah. and you were, you were you were talking about some of this research. Yeah. And I think it affected people in a strong way. And you know, some of the students that just came in, they're not going to get to hear from you until a little bit later in the year. Right. right. And I'm sure it comes up in your book. Mm-hmm. Could, it does. Could you just explain some of the ins and outs of the implicit bias research that you've done? Sure. And Mazarin Banaji, who I just mentioned, is really this the the world's expert on this. So implicit bias is the idea that when our mind is operating, um, some of what's happening is conscious and within our awareness, and some of it we don't even know is happening. And what neuroscientists tell us is something like, I I don't actually remember the percentage off the top of my head, but I'm going to say approximately 90% of our mental functioning is happening outside of our awareness. In any given second, we're taking in 11 million bits of information. In any given second, 11 million bits of information of every sort, the colors around you, the smells around you, the you're not consciously processing all that. It's just being processed for you. So in your brain, in all that unconscious processing that's happening, if I say to you peanut butter, you say? Jelly. Right. Do you know how your brain came to know the association between peanut butter and jelly? I think it's from a, you know an affinity for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> And somehow those two became associated. If I say twinkle, twinkle, you say? Little star. There you go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to throw the whole thing up. <laughs> so these associations came from the, 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 the air around us, the culture around us, in ways that we weren't even aware of. We don't remember when we associated those things. Well, we also have, similarly, unconscious associations between other things. The majority of Americans have an unconscious association between black men and violence. Now, that's not something that most of us consciously are espousing. But what the research shows is that we are associating those things in our mind. And it isn't because we were born with it. We were born with a mind that both consciously and unconsciously processes these things. But where the association got formed, just like peanut butter and jelly, if you go to other countries, they're not associating peanut butter and jelly. That was a cultural association we learned here. Similarly, the association uh, between black men and violence is somehow an association we're picking up from the world around us, um, from the media, from the news, from things we hear the adults around us say. And so these are unconscious biases, what I'm describing. They don't necessarily line up with what we believe on a conscious basis, but they do have some leakage into our behavior. And so what I study, largely because I myself carry so many unconscious biases that don't line up with my conscious beliefs, what I study is how do these unconscious biases affect our behavior, where are they showing up in our lives, where are they showing up in our minds, and you know, to be honest, not uh, super optimism yet that we can undo the biases. As researchers, we haven't cracked the code on that. But we're trying to push towards knowing more about them so we can at least build organizations 
and and lives in which we're trying to counter those biases. Well, in in a place like academia, yeah, where people are more aware of these things, maybe at least in like NYU Stern or among professors or in academia, maybe we are farther away from that sort of bias than you would typically have in the standard American society. Well, I wish that were true. I don't know specifically. I haven't done a data collection specifically at Stern, but what I can tell you is that um, so one study that I did with um, Madhubay Akinola and Katie Milkman, who are professors at Columbia University and Wharton, respectively, we did a study where we sent emails to professors in schools all over the country. So every school in the U.S. News and World Report rankings, and the email looked like it came from a graduate student or a potential graduate student interested in applying to their doctoral program. And we, the student asked, they said, they were in, I'm interested in your research, I'm interested in applying to your program, would you be willing to meet with me? This is a very common email for, we, for us to get. I get an email like this every single day from someone I don't know. What they didn't know is those emails were actually from fictional doctoral students that we'd made up, made up email addresses. And the, the content of the email was the same. We just changed the sender of the email. So it could be Lamar Washington or it could be Deepak Sharma. So we had black names, white names, Indian names, Chinese names, and Hispanic names. Oh, so the same letter went to all of the same professors. So a each, cold call, right? Yeah, cold call. Each professor only gets one email, and it's random whether the email was male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Chinese, or Indian. And so then we just kept track of who responded to the email, who agreed to a meeting. And what we found is that the white male-sounding names were far more likely to get a response than the not white male sounding names. So if you put all those other categories that I said together, and I really don't think was deliberate on the professor's part. Professors, I mean, anywhere you look in the mass media to now, professors are being maligned as being so liberal and so, you know, politically correct and all of that. That's not completely false. <laughs> that's, not the, that's, not a, that's not a completely false characterization. So if even that group, even that population is showing this kind of bias, my guess is, is it's unconscious. I mean, we, didn't, we couldn't tell yeah, from our Yeah, because they're data. trying real hard not to be biased. Right, right. Wow, that really kind of like yeah. gives an anecdotal and data-driven right. proof of implicit bias. Well, and it, I, I, the, the, I'm going to hesitate because this is where I'm going to go into my academic mode. So I'm going to say we can't prove it's unconscious bias. Ah. It could have been conscious. My data can't tell you. But what's the R, R squared on that one? There you yeah. go. Look at <laughs> you. This two. is a hypothesis. Want to go into the variance? <laughs> wow, um, that's good. Yeah. I mean, you're you're, you're talking about psychological phenomena. Yes. And so, what is your background in psychology and, and the study of psychology, and and how did you transition that into sort of a business context? So the moral of the story, if we just skip to the punchline, is I should have listened to my mother. <laughs> she was right again. Moms you hear that, are mom? always yeah. right. Moms are always they're omniscient. Yeah, but mom's really always know. right. Of course. Mom is always eventually. right. Eventually. Moms are always right that eventually. eventually. The mo moms play the long game. They, they <laughs> There's a big ellipsis in there. <laughs> yeah. Three big dots. They don't even say it sometimes, but they, they look at you and they go, you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> you'll understand when you have kids. My mom says that at least oh, once a day. I think, and she was right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Somebody who has kids. So in what way, I'm sure this was is one of right. hundreds of ways, ways was mom's mom right. right? In this particular instance, when I was in high school, she got me a subscription to Psychology Today. Just kind of what great felt magazine. randomly. It is a great magazine. My friend Gary Drevich is the editor there. Uh, my mom just said, I think this is the stuff that you should be doing. And I was like, oh, I don't know, Mom. What do you know? Whatever. <laughs> so whatever. Fast forward. I did major in psychology in college, psychology and economics. But then I went and worked in investment banking and went to business school. I mean, nowhere near, you know, what what she had said when I was 15. It wasn't until I was 33, if I'm doing the math right, that I finally was like, oh, you know what I should do? Psychology. <laughs> yeah, like it was your idea. <laughs> yeah, too. it was my idea, totally. Totally like it was my idea. So yeah, so then I'm like, I know, I'll apply to these PhD programs and maybe I'll like study this. So I started a PhD program when I was 33 in social psychology. So that was a second career. Um, wow. A pivot from being in the business world with an MBA to being an academic teaching MBA. So, um, you know, I, I heard a, a story about your MBA five-year reunion. Oh, yeah. And sort of 
that being a real pivot point. Can you tell us that yeah, story? Yeah, absolutely. So the year was 1999, and um, 1999 was like a real peak internet bubble. Like things yeah, a lot were, going on. There was a lot going on in 99. What was going on in 99? What were we doing in 99, Sherry? Um, I was running around a playground <laughs> in a Winnie the Pooh sweatshirt. Oh, so cute. I was what a the visual. dorkiest. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing in 99. I was, are we still listening to tapes, cassette tapes at that oh, point? Oh, I think we were at CDs. 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 Think we were CDs? CDs? Cool. Phone store I rope on it. I had my Lyle Lovett CD in 99. Lyle Lovett. <laughs> wow. Oh, my. That's We've unintentionally <laughs> plugged Lyle Lovett. I didn't know... <laughs> Good to know. Uh, yeah, so you're taking us back to 1999. 1999. And all I had gone to the Harvard Business School. I had graduated in 1984. And in those five years, my classmates had gone on in Silicon Valley and this way and started, like, big, awesome startups and done cool, famous things and were flying in private jets. And, like, they were living the life. And that wasn't the life I was going for. But going into a reunion, knowing that's the stuff you're going to be hearing about, I, you know, exactly. I roll. <laughs> like, here we go. Like, you oh, know? sweet, guys. Oh, yeah. gosh. And it was going to be, I was single. I didn't want to be single. So that was kind of another thing going into the I didn't really want to go. I really didn't want to go to this reunion. And I, I'm a, I'm a go-to-the-reunion person. Like, I go to my high school. I mean, I go. I go to reunions. But I just was dreading. And I'm not a super jealous person either. Like, I'm the kind of person, if you do great, I'm happy. There's yeah. room for both of no, us. We get it, though. You didn't want to have to hear about how Pets.com was doing great or whatever. I know. <laughs> you know. Pets.com. Exactly. And so, anyway, I go. And the, the surprise was that even though it was sort of like, oh, my God, to hear what everybody's doing, it wasn't horrible to hear about it. I was sort of excited to hear every story I heard. And I didn't want to trade places with anybody I talked to. The, the sort of envy test, I was cool. I was like, I'm good. Um, and then we got to the part of the reunion where the professors do some presentations. They just tell you what they've been up to. And... I'm sitting in these presentations, and I realized sitting there that I had never really realized what professors did when they weren't teaching me. I just sort of thought it was all about me. I think they go back into, like, their uh, charging station. Uh, yeah, like. they just wait to teach me again. They're yeah. like, when do I get to teach Dolly again? <laughs> Turns out they had other things going on. They were doing research, and so they were sharing their research with us. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, this, now I'm jealous. The envy test kind of the the I was off the meter, off the meter was off the chart. And I realized at that moment that's what I really wanted to be. I had no idea how you I mean, I also wanted to be Madonna. So like it, Oh sure. I mean <laughs> quite a fork in the road for you. Yeah. It's like could have gone either way. Wow. Could have gone either way. The envy test. The envy test. What a novel like way to figure out what yeah. you really want yeah. to do. Yeah. The envy test. And so from there, it took a couple more years to kind of piece it together. And, like, you know how when you suddenly have something kind of percolating in your mind, it starts popping up in weird ways? Or, like, you buy a red car and suddenly you notice everybody has a red car, you know? It, that's what started happening is, you know, I'll spare you the every step of it. But basically things started percolating. And a few years later, I actually applied and then called mom and said you were right you d you actually oh, gave her the wow. you were right i've given her a lot of you were rights that's fair yeah i think i think uh that's one of my favorite things to do is to receive a you were right oh i know people like it it's satisfying to receive it sherry uh will never take a you know like i was right oh, or really? you were wrong I, I call them told you so moments <laughs> i i i have been wrong before really? and i and i've told sherry i've said all right Here's your here's your moment. Say I told you so, and she's like, I will not. She won't not. do it. I You're will such not. a good person, Sherry. I'm like, oh my god. No, I take I, your told you so. Come on, seriously, Sherry. I don't withhold them to torture you. I just don't think it's necessary. You earned it, man. Oh. No, no, no. See, you make the rest of us look bad. That's not good. That's nice. not good. You're it's the nice kid crushing the curve. I'm sure mom appreciated the. Well, mom deserves it. Mom deserves every you were right. I'm really hoping my kids are listening to this and. Gearing Wait. up their you are rights for me. <laughs> you can just maybe uh, they don't have to wait till <laughs> they're forty nine. You can yeah, I mean you can just you can just send them the tape. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I I will. Two Do you prefer fans. your um 
your rights in written form or verbal, <laughs> just so that we can catalog it I'm correctly. I'm on social media so everybody <laughs> like, can see. Perfect. I prefer it to be widely <laughs> public. The town square. chat. <laughs> you, li- you like it? Town yeah. yeah. Put it in the town square. You know, so... Students here love you. Oh, you know I love our students. And I, I think I think that you, you probably get good feedback from students all the time. You make a specific decision when you decide to be a professor to to work with students. Right. Why are your students so important to you? Yeah, I love my students. I really that was the hardest thing about being on sabbatical was not seeing the students. And in fact, just to tie it to the creation of the space during my sabbatical, this co working space I had was filled with people in their late 20s and early 30s. And it occurred to me about six months in, I was like, I just recreated Stern. So <laughs> my happy place. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Is and that I, your implicit bias Maybe, maybe. In? You know, because you know, every now and then I would talk to someone. I was usually in my cave. But every now and then I would talk to someone and we would, like, end up connecting on LinkedIn. And I would see they would actually often be friends with a number of students here. Like, that literally was their peer group. And I was like, that is so funny. Yeah. That I, like, I'm not with the students, so I just create these, like, fake students. <laughs> these, like, proxies. Well, it's better than... <laughs> like putting a sweater on a pillow <laughs> like you, you know you know getting proxy people is fine never quite that. thought of it that way Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's far more weird ways to replace the people in your life I you're missing so. <laughs> so um yeah so why are my students so important to me I learn a ton from our students and I think that's a very selfish response for me to give I learn so much from our students because I feel like in some ways I'm living vicariously through you guys. You know, you're you're taking risks I never took. You're living in a time that I was not this age in. This is a very different time than the time when I went to business school. You're bold in sort of social interactions in ways that I wasn't. So in a lot of ways, I'm living through my students and I'm living experiences that I, I would never know. Like somebody who's come from another country, somebody who's served in our armed forces, somebody who has experienced poverty. These are not things that I've experienced. And when I'm able to work with those students, I learn so much from that. Well, we're so lucky to have you at NYU. Thank you. I mean, you. with all your, you know, your papers and your research and your love of students, we really appreciate, I mean, your presence here. How did you choose this institution yeah. above other institutions? So... When we, as academics, there's it's a very strange job market to be on because there's so few opportunities in any given geographic area. So, so there is some element of choice, but there's also a huge element of just where did you get a job. In my case, NYU was my first choice, so I got incredibly lucky in scoring this job. And the reason it was my first choice was that, um, well, A, I wanted to be in New York because, you know, see earlier segment about husband Long Island (laughs) 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 Um, husband was willing to move but we both have family in this area and we we wanted to be close to our family I also really appreciate NYU's history the more I learn about it the more I appreciate it of really being a school that has been open to a broader segment of the population being open to Jewish students being open to people of color at a time um, historically when that wasn't necessarily as true either de facto not as true or just not sort of um, customary, not as true. I love that NYU tries to be in and of the city. I know that's the cliche we use, but I think it's reflected in kind of how we do our work, and I like that. I've gotten very involved in the last year with the NYU prison education program, and I've been teaching in a prison where many of the incarcerated students are from the five boroughs. They get sent to a prison upstate. They're very far from their, their support systems. But then when they're released, they are back in this New York City area. And I've been able, of course, I didn't know any of this when I took the job at NYU. I didn't know this would be what I would end up doing 11 years later. But but now I can feel one of the advantages of being in a place like NYU is now I'm in touch with um, my formerly incarcerated students as they re-enter society. Um, one student was released last week. And being part of a, an organization like this one that's being hosted at NYU and run by NYU that's doing such important work trying to help people who've made mistakes earn college credit through the courses we're teaching in the prison, and then once they're released, take the work they've done on themselves and try to beat a system that's really geared against them. So even though they've paid their dues, they now face 
tremendous barriers in reentering society. And this organization, NYU Prison Education Program, is working to counter that as well. That's something I feel like being in at a place like NYU, I can be part of. I'm not in some ivory tower in some isolated part of the country. I'm really part of something I care about. I tell you what, you have said some amazing things. Yeah, we'd love to hear more about the teaching in prison. Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah, that has been an experience that's really changed me. It's, I went in, like, I went in very, like, savior mode of, like, okay, so there's this mass incarceration problem. I read the new Jim Crow. I saw 13th, the documentary. Like, I get it. There's a problem. There's injustice. And I'm, you know, I'm going to go in there and, like, save some souls kind of thing. And then as the time got closer for me to actually start teaching in this medium security men's prison, I came very close to checking out. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. What am I going to do? Like, I, all like what scared you? I mean, what scared you about that? I, I, like, everything. All of it. I had never been to a prison. I was going to be, I had never taught all men. I had certainly never taught all men who were convicted of felonies. I. Yeah, that's a double whammy. I was of everything associated with it. I had a very a vision of very violent people. You know, I didn't chicken out, um, mainly because I was at a conference, uh, and there was someone from Dave's Killer Bread, which is a very popular bread company, I think on the West Coast, mainly. Great bread. Great bread. I've never had it. <laughs> but no, legitimately great bread. That's what I heard. I mean, it's like really good. And um, there was someone at the conference who worked at Dave's Killer Bread, and Dave's Killer Bread uh, employs primarily formerly incarcerated employees. And this person I met at the conference also used to be in prison. He shared that. He was there as a representative of Dave's Killer Bread, so he shared his prison history. And so I asked him, I said, well, here's the thing, I'm about to chicken out of doing this, and what do you think? And he's like, no, trust me. He goes, they're not going to be scary. They're not going to be, your, your, what you're picturing is not what's going to happen. So on his advice, this guy I just met once, <laughs> I trusted, I said, okay, I'll, do, I'll teach this course. And to my surprise, my students, in, I taught a class very similar to the ones I teach here, the leadership and organizations and managerial class, skills class. I kind of merged them into one class. And my, they were like you guys. They were, they were better prepared. Than you guys. <laughs> oh, boy. oh my goodness! Oh boy, they were. They had done their reading. They always had done their reading, and not because they have more time than you. Most of them work full time in prison for twenty two cents an hour. They they don't have more time, but boy, are they thirsty to learn. And like all students, some of them are quiet. Some of them, I can't get them to stop talking. Some of them were funny. Some of them were serious. Some of them, you know, were kind of nice about the content. Some of them were sophisticated about the content. Um, a third of them had never used Google before. A third of them had never used Google? They, wow. they have been in prison so long or before they went to prison, they didn't have exposure to it. They came at this class with such appreciation. Like, literally, I would end every class with, like, so many people thanking me for teaching them. I mean, like, I love you guys, but nobody walks up to me <laughs> after class thanking me for teaching them. When I would arrive in class, there would be so much appreciation. And I'm making it sound like this whole thing is just a big ego stroke for me. But um, it actually went beyond that. What I learned from it was the, the resilience of the human spirit. So these were men who had every reason to give up and weren't. And I'm not saying they hadn't done things that they should pay serious consequences for. Many of them had committed serious crimes. They also are incarcerated in an unjust system, and the data is really clear that the system is unjust. So within that unjust system, for crimes that they regret, they are trying to get better. And, you know, I stood in a, you know, I sat in this room with one student read 106 books last year. And they weren't like oh phone it in books. They were, I was like, yeah, you read 106 books. Like what books? And he like pulls out a list <laughs> where he keeps track of them by like fiction. He has like a whole like wow, chart. that's a hunger to learn. Yeah. And he shows me the list and it's, you know all those books that we all mean to read like on the New York Times. <laughs> so, like, oh, he, tons of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He read them, all of them. So they have a, you know, they have a small library and he can request, he's, he, he can request books that they'll request from, they'll bring in from other prison libraries. He read 106 books last year. He's on wow. track to read more this year. Um, they have a student council that where they try to work together, where they put on 
um, they, they organize book groups. I ran a book group up there. I brought an author friend who wrote Alexander Hamilton's Guide to Life, which is a tr- tr- terrific pop biography. As an extracurricular, not for any college credit, they all read this book. I brought the author. They asked him terrific questions. He was dazzled by them. We did role plays just like we do in the classes here. And, you know, I had, I had grown men like with tears running down their faces when we would role play how to have a difficult conversation. When we would talk about uh, active listening, they would speak about their children at home and trying to connect with them over the phone and hearing in the, the content we were covering about active listening, hearing the mistakes they were making. They were trying to tell their children how not to make, mis- you know, make certain mistakes in their school lives or their, their, um, their uh, childhoods, and they weren't hearing what their children were saying to them. They were, lear- they were learning through our course ways in which they could parent better by phone. It was just so powerful and moving and inspiring, and I had completely, completely missed the boat with my fear at the beginning. I had otherized, I pictured them as this sort of aggregate, scary group. They weren't. They, so, were, they were shockingly normal. So it sounds like it was a mix of sort of academic work, but also a lot of life skills that you were helping them hone Yeah. while, um, while I, incarcerated. And I think, I think actually my courses here work out that way too. You know, with the MBAs, they often, uh, students often do tell me usually in more one-on-one form how the course is, is flowing into their personal lives as well. So I think the content that I happen to teach lends itself that way. What was different there was because they don't have, they're not going to go into a summer internship or, you know, a full-time employment in the way that the students here will. Their their most immediate application was within the prison, how they could apply it, or within the social and family relationships they have. Wow. You know, what you said about otherizing people. Yeah. You know, I mean, is there a lesson there that any time you find yourself otherizing people, you should probably dig a little deeper? Yeah. Oh, that's so true. You know, I mean, I mean, this is the best example. Yeah, no, it's so true, and it really, I really, boy, did I like get humbled by that lesson because I, why did it shock me that they were normal people? What was I expecting? I don't, I don't. Now I look back and I'm like, what? I was like in a full body sweat the first time I walked in there. I was so nervous and anxious. Now I'm completely comfortable. I can be in the middle of a, this men's prison. Now, I, I do understand I was working with a self-selected group of students, not self-selected, a pre-selected group of students. They had to apply to be in this program. I, I, I'm not in any way trying to suggest that I'm an expert on mass incarceration or that I've experienced all kinds of prisons. I haven't. But in this one experience I've had, I it humanized people I was otherizing. So something that I think I deal with a lot is obviously I'm unconsciously otherizing. Yeah. And and typically it takes somebody outside of my head yeah. to say like, hey, you should you should think of this in a different way or have you considered this angle? Is there a way that we could help ourselves snap out of it yeah. without sort of that external pressure? Absolutely. And I think, and this is part of some of the stuff I'm trying to cover in the book. So I have a, a whole chapter about otherizing. Part of it is these, the savior mode we were talking about earlier. Like when we're in the savior mode, we are otherizing people because now they've just become a... a, a a cause. A cause, yeah. right? Exactly. Part of it is so seeing yourself when you're in that. I had a student here at NYU who um, who I mentored uh, pretty closely, and I felt like we had a close relationship. And he hit upon some financial struggles. He was an undergrad. He hit upon some financial struggles, and I learned after the fact that he was living in the library. He was sleeping in the library. And I was furious when I heard this. And you would think I'd be furious because of the circumstances that would lead him to be sleeping in the library. But instead, I was furious that he hadn't told me. Like, it, it was about me. So <laughs> poor guy had nowhere to live, and it was, my, it was about me. Oh, man. <laughs> and so in my head, I mean, I didn't, like, I didn't, like, articulate any of this. This was all just the inner dialogue in my head of, like, I could have fixed that. I mean, I know plenty of people with, like, a couch or a bed or I mean I live on Long Island but he could even have slept there I mean like whatever we could have figured this out this was not a hard problem to solve temporarily I was definitely otherizing him because I was in this savior mode where he was a problem to be solved that was going to give me the warm glow of being a hero and the the truth is what he didn't want to tell me 
he didn't want to be saved. Wow, this is this mm. is a lot of your research is about things that are happening that you're unaware of. Yeah. And I mean, this is definitely a phenomenon that you don't think about. No. I mean, if you're listening, before you put on your cape and you go <laughs> and you run and try and save anybody, you just, I mean, definitely do good things, but consider that you might be otherizing people. I mean, I haven't even really thought through this the way, I guess we're getting a preview of your book. That's I why. I guess so. Oh, by, wow. the way, by the way, the book is called The Person You Mean to, to Be. To Be, HarperCollins, Fall 2018. Are we the pe- first people to plug the book? You might be. Wow. Yes. Wow. That's Excellent. great. It's no better place. Thank you. I, I mean, it's obviously going to be a, a bestseller. <laughs> and obviously. And if, and if you're listening to this, you have to, in fall 2018, yeah. go out and get the book, The Person You Mean to Be. Oh, thank you. And you can even pre-order it leading up you to the book. You can pre-order it oh, on Amazon, I assume. On Amazon, spring and summer 2018. Guys, don't wait. Don't wait. Pre-order it. Pre-orders make a big difference. Be a first mover. Be what's that? What's that call when you adopt an early adopter? An early adopter. <laughs> be an early adopter, guys. Be an innovator. Go get the book that Dolly is writing right now. It's not going to write itself. Yeah, it's not going to write itself. <laughs> yeah, this program that you you, t- you talk about, you know, if people want to get involved, how yeah. could they get involved? The NYU Prison Education Program. Right. Absolutely, they have a terrific website. I don't have the URL off the top of my head, but if you Google NYU Prison Education Program, it comes right up. Um, And there is a place where you can click volunteer if you want to be involved. So some of their work happens here in New York City because, as I mentioned, when our former students are released, there's um, post-incarceration work with arranging housing, health care, more educational opportunities. Many students want to continue school. And here the idea is to think of think of centering them and their needs as opposed to sort of our needs and sort of what, what we want as saviors is to partner. They, they know a lot. They may not know how to use Google just because they weren't around. As, you know, they, they don't have access to the Internet in prison. So, uh, but that doesn't mean that they aren't incredibly smart, motivated, um, inquisitive people. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for everything and for being here. We are so grateful for your time. And I am so grateful for what you two are doing. Like, all kidding aside, I really do think Stern Chats is bringing a level of depth and compassion into our community that, like, you found a gap to fill where we can hear from each other, where we can see each other as full human beings. And when I listen to the podcast... I really do feel this sense of connection that, that's, I, I've been here 11 years. I haven't felt it until I am listening to these these podcasts. So I think you're doing something really important. I'm really glad you've started this and you're looking for a way to keep it going. I, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, people come in here and they have a long form conversation. Yeah. And I mean, they have complicated thoughts. Yeah. And I mean, I if you wrote me an email about what some of the things you had said, I never would have gotten like the whole depth of it. And boy, right. do I appreciate that I got to hear some of the things you had to say. Thank you so much for donating your time to us. Thank you. Did you have fun? I had a great time. That's half the goal, honestly. That's half the goal. Twice as much fun as I I have had doing anything else today. Yeah, you know, all like the uh, transportation (laughs) hijinks aside, (laughs) you you went to Brooklyn just to get to the West Village. We so appreciate it. If you're listening to this podcast, go and pre-order the book, The Person You Mean to Be, on Amazon, wherever you get your books if you don't like Amazon. Professor Chug, thank you so much. Thank you both so much.